This is Season 5, Episode 5, Rewilding the Urban Soul with Claire Dunn. I'm so excited about bringing this episode to you because Claire's books and her spaces and her leadership and the way that she communicates with life and with humans as part of that is really incredible. In this conversation, we cover so much terrain, but I know that just by listening to this experience and going on this journey with us, you are going to receive the actual embodied experience of regeneration. So let's dive in and get straight on with the episode. Claire, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Meg. Thanks for having me along. Really good to be chatting. It's um, it's a morning here and we were just talking that grey clouds are rolling in as we're talking. So it feels, the atmosphere feels very um, laden with the promise of rain. And um, I was thinking about on my way down to the studio where I work and just a very clunky transition this morning with my own kids. And I was thinking what a, what a cool place to start, you know, around transitions and I'm curious about what you've learned from the more than human world about transitions and how that theme's kind of weaving for you at the moment just wanted to start there Mm. transitions yeah great question to start with as we transition into this conversation Uh, I also just transitioned back home after a few days away and and the first thing I do really is walk in the front gate and, and check check the vegetables, check my seedlings um, and, you know, just get a feel for the soil and the weather and, and like you, I'm very glad for the, um, the rain clouds that are, that are gathering today. It feels like the autumn rains are, are needed in my garden. Um, but that's a, that's a good way for me to transition back into being home is, is to kind of connect with, <clears throat> with my uh, food garden at home. But in terms of what, what is the transitions in the more than human world offer me or, or teach me, well, I guess they, uh, they really help embed and, uh, and kind of mirror back to me the the cycles this kind of cyclical nature of life um you know our our modern western industrial time frame is as we as we feel it every day and in the kind of juggling of uh the to-do lists it's a very linear time frame it's uh according to kind of microseconds on our computer and it's just such a uh, such a reassuring, affirming, relieving uh, experience to put myself down at my sit spot, you know, the special spot where I sit down by the river or wherever I am in nature and, and stop and listen and feel the, feel the rhythm of the earth, you know, the kind of time frame of the earth, the, the diurnal you know, cycle of the sun and the earth and the moon and um, if you've ever spent a day out on the land, <clears throat> you know, fasting or, or just solo, it really puts you in touch with the, the cycles of the day, of the sun, and it's, it's such a 
a day is a really long, long time. <laughs> and a year, an annual cycle uh, is a really long time. So much happens, so much changes all the time. And so it's a, it's a beautiful mirror and a very needed mirror of the, you know, the longevity of life, the longevity of a day, the, <clears throat> the cyclical nature of things changing and returning and, and um, the really necessary cycles of, of birthing and growth and um, harvest and fullness and, and then fellow time and integration time and stillness time and back we go again to a period of birthing, which of course happens for us both in the micro and the macro uh, levels in our life. So mm. that's one area I draw sustenance from the more than human world is this recognition of the cycles of life. Mm. As you're talking, I'm just watching the, the clouds and and the leaves and these gentle movements and um, strikes me that, you know, we're always in transition. Even that word is, is <laughs> it, it has limitations, right, because it still implies that there's periods of not transition when maybe, in fact, in the more than human world and therefore within ourselves, we're constantly in motion, constantly moving just like the sun, even micro degrees. And perhaps it's the... It's the reflection of the culture and the societies that we've built where we have the illusion that we're not transitory, <laughs> that there is fixed staticness and how much challenge and suffering can come from that illusion and um, that idea that we can grasp onto what is, in fact, always moving. And I'm just wondering, yeah, I'm wondering mm. what that evokes for you as, as mm. I say that. What it evokes for me immediately is the the sense of uh, na you know nature as teacher, nature as uh, spiritual teacher. You know nothing nothing teaches me more about the um, you know the, the great law of change uh, than than nature because it's it's just constantly changing, evolving. And James Lovelock, uh, who who kind of coined the the uh, phrase Gaia to relate to this planet that we live on, this earth, uh, part, of, part of what he kind of, you know, uh, I guess jo joining the dots is for him in this, in this concept of Gaia being a living entity, the earth being a living organism like a whole in itself, just like our body as a whole, <clears throat> is that, that the earth is constantly micro-adjusting the conditions in the atmosphere to maintain life on earth so that the constant change in in gases and um and carbon dioxide and oxygen so that life on earth can can flourish and continue and it's it, there's those <clears throat> constant constant micro changes and at the same time the other thing that your your response evoked in me is the knowledge that there are also times in in the more than human world and and mirrored in our own life where there, there are really significant um, transitions or thresholds that we cross in our development. Mm. In, uh, if, we're, if we're not, if we are open to change, if we're engaged, there are thresholds that we'll cross that will feel very different to the chapters in between, mm. um, which, which are 
which are really necessary to acknowledge, to celebrate, to, um, <clears throat> to mark and, you know, transitions between stages of maturity um, in a very gross way. It could be, you know, from adolescence to adulthood, but, of course, there's many smaller thresholds within those. And that's something that I'm really passionate about is, um, is really uh, tracking and marking and acknowledging and, and amplifying those some of the really key transition points in life. Mm. <clears throat> I love, I love, I would love to go deeper into this because it's something that interestingly in the themes of the conversations in this season, it's, it's been very focused around kind of regenerative relationships and how we foster that, you know, culture mm. and, um, and rites of passage is something that's come up again and again and marking those transitions and, um, strikes me that in order to do that there needs to be a certain it's not a level of embodied awareness but it's almost like in order to even recognize a transition as something monumental that's happening um, there needs to be both that awareness within the individual and in the collective that it's significant and that it needs um, attention and tending to and, and care and support. I'm curious how you weave that in your work at the moment and what, what mm. you're exploring in terms of um, rights and transitions and, and, and yeah. create community, communities around that. Communities yes. Around yeah. Yeah. Thank you. These questions are um, pretty much tracking right where I'm at at life in terms of my interests and passions. So I'm, I'm enjoying that surprise element, Meg. Um, and I know that your community around Castlemaine has some really fantastic um, rites of passage programs happening for young men and young women. And, and I'm so excited by that. It's just so, so necessary. It's um, one of the major, major missing pieces um, that I feel is um, so important in, in a kind of reclaiming of regenerative culture is bringing back the, the, the kind of tracking of <clears throat> stages of development through our communities and a recognition of, um, you know, points of transition in a, in a young person's life. Um, so the way I understand a rite of passage in its, uh, in its traditional way that it was used a rite of passage doesn't create a transition because a, a transition uh, can only really happen when the conditions are right in a person's life, you know, when there's, when there's a stage of development or stage of maturity coming to an end and a new, a new one beginning. A rite of passage doesn't, like you can't sign up for a vision quest and say, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make this transition from my adolescent uh, way of being into an adult way of being but a rite of passage can mark a transition that's already happening. That's its power <clears throat> because in the marking of it, it, it really helps the wheel of life turn. It really kind of greases the, the, the cogs, if you like, of that wheel so that that ceremony, that fast, that, that ordeal, that solo time, that acknowledgement from the village is, is, a, is a really strong uh, signal to the psyche that, oh, this is, you know, I can, the wheel can turn, you know, it's been acknowledged, but it doesn't, doesn't create the transition in itself. But one of the, 
the trans- transitions or thresholds that I'm really interested in and working closely with people is um, <clears throat> kind of the shift from uh, it is from a kind of adolescent way of being, uh, which it could be, you know, there's it could be an egocentric stage or it could even be, you know, people can still be in an, in an ecocentric um, way of life, uh, way of understanding the world, but still have not fully transitioned into adulthood. Adulthood meaning a, a, a knowledge of one's gifts, a really embodied uh, knowledge of one's kind of ecological niche. One of my mentors, Bill Plotkin, calls it, you know, your, your um, mythopoetic identity, finding your mythopoetic identity in the world. Like what is your personal myth? What are the images at the centre of your soul that inform who you are and what you're offering the world? And <clears throat> this transition um, is one that, that not many people reach in Western culture because we, we don't have the... Um, we don't support the kinds of processes that that get one to that stage. Um, so that's that's a transition that I'm really interested in, and it, it's often marked when you know when people come to me for mentoring or for courses or so forth, and they and it's often the markers are that they're deep questions like uh, you know I've been living this life and it's all good, and you know I've been ticking all the boxes that society and my parents want me to tick, but something's not quite right something doesn't feel fulfilled I don't feel fully alive in my gifts I'm not fully aware of who I am and what is my deeper purpose and it's often characterized by a period of of um of a kind of unraveling uh whether it's willing or or unwilling a kind of unraveling of life as it has been you know things falling away um and often often really characterized by a, a deep desire for altered states of consciousness for numerous encounters with nature, with, with, yeah, with wild nature and a, and a kind of deep desire to be with the earth in a really different way, not as a kind of tourist or not as a kind of nature appreciator but really wanting to dive deep into the kind of mysteries of nature and psyche. And so that's something I track in people is, is when I start getting a whiff of that, that transition and that's where something like a, a vision quest, you know, some solo time on the land or some strong ceremony can really juice that up. <clears throat> Just as we're talking, the rain has come. So it's like a beautiful rain has come and also there was tears when you were talking because it's I recognise that so well. And for me, it, there's been multiple deepenings of that in that particular transition Mm. and with every one of them there's been an enormous period of dissolving and contraction and Mm. a a, like who the fuck am I moment you know Mm. of like your identity kind of really being in those shifting sands Um, and then as in each emergence there's been like one piece or an integration of several pieces and I feel like the one I'm in right now is like um, really being ready and open for the fullest picture to emerge that it has to date. Um, uh, I'm pregnant with our third child and, like, the the whole bringing this being earthside has been this phenomenal transition. And, um, and I really, as you were talking, there was something in me just remembering that um, 
the resonance with, I guess, your work and, and, I, and I track that in folks too and I have such a deep desire to help move beyond those exceptionalist kind of supremacist ideas of purpose into these more ecological regenerative realms of function and um, function in relationship, you know, and understanding mm-hmm. the interconnectedness that we don't have to be everything nor do we have to be exceptional in these very narrow confines of what culture determines as successful that in fact it's this deeper, it's, it's to me it's, it's characterised by this shifting down into the body and into the earth. It's like a shifting down gear is what I experience it as, as sinking into what already is, the gifts that are already there, um, a, a letting them be liberated from probably years of having them uh, hidden or not owned or not claimed. And I just think it's such important work because in doing that, I feel like there's something that ties us back together with each other. There's something about that individual journey that creates connection. And I don't know whether that makes any sense or that's been your experience in working with groups of how does that finding of that deeper purpose in in that broader sense reconnect or, or regenerate our relationships or allow us to connect in a, in a different way, do you think? Mm. <clears throat> There's so much in that, in that reflection, Meg. Um, and, and some of what you were talking about I recognise as, um, you know, the kind of maltings that we all go through in life um, that, that are like mini unravelings that can feel pretty significant at the time. Um, but there's, yeah, series of, of maltings. And I imagine, uh, I imagine having a, a, another child <laughs> requires another kind of letting go or surrender. Um, but yeah, this, this one transition that I was talking about into, into a period of really searching for one's deeper purpose is, is a, a kind of death to an old identity. It really is a dying. And I was just having a conversation with, with a woman yesterday who, you know, wasn't, <laughs> didn't know what was going on for her, but this, she had this deep desire to be, she just said, I just feel like I need to be buried by the earth, you know, like a, I, I just want to be in the earth so much that I, it, the earth kind of swallows me. And, it, and uh, you know, that for me is a really kind of clear marker of entering that phase of, um, of deep questioning uh, and that questioning can't, can't have answers in within four walls it's a conversation that has to be had in wilder nature Mm. um and you know your question around that is is it something that kind of you know connects us in a regenerative way does it build community well yes and yes however i would say for a while there it actually can feel like you know this this person this wanderer this one who wants to get swallowed by the earth in some ways needs to divorce from community for a while to to uh, to experience a severance, um, so that the old identity can die without the mirrors of her human community saying, "No, this is who you are. This is who you are." Mm-hmm. And for me, that period of, was really painful because I had I had uh, developed and cultivated a really beautiful community that was centered around earth activism and um, you know forest campaigning and my work with the Wilderness Society and other grassroots organizations and um it was such a rich beautiful life in service of the earth and yet there was it wasn't fully me and I had to 
very painfully walk away from that community, which was painful for myself and for them, especially because it had an element of, and it has to have this element of uncertainty. It's not like I knew where I was going or that I was, you know, swapping one job for another job. Um, I had no idea where I would end up, where my life was taking me. All I knew was I had to follow this very strong tugging at my hem to enter into a period of deep immersion in nature and to ask those deeper questions of who am I? Where's my true belonging? What's my true inheritance? And um, it was, you know, it can be a very harrowing journey. But, it, of course, it, 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 when, it, when it kind of completes its cycle, it does bring you back into community in a really different way because you take your place and it's a very humble place too. It's not like the hero's journey coming back with like band, band <laughs> drums, marching band. You know, it's often a kind of like, whew, I survived and I, I have a very humble seed that I'm carrying with me that is um, that really is yearning to be nourished by my community now, to be watered and fertilised and, and, and then will fruit. Um, but it's a really different person that comes back into community after having that kind of, you know, deep identity shift um, because, of course, what you come back with is not a vocation. It's not something you could look up on Seek and find a job for. It's something much more mysterious and so unique that um, it kind of takes a lifetime to, to live into is my understanding, which, you know, still <laughs> I'm still living my way into what, what is my true inheritance and what's the, what's the gift that only I can give to this world. Mm, it's so evocative when you share that and, and what I love is just these in sharing that process you know I, I love I love process I'm very <laughs> very much love being in that place rather than outcome and job titles and you know um mm. just known I like I like being in the unknown I find mm. more comfort there now but you're what, one of the few <laughs> <laughs> well I think it's taken all of that unraveling right continually yeah, yeah. and more uh, familiarity with the underworld in a way Mm, yeah and and what I love about it is that you, you're referring to these things like conversation and um it, it being a conversation a continual conversation and then the, until the process completes uh at an unknown time right and so just that in itself it's something I always reflect on I think as folks go through I mean it's never linear but what I notice in some of the work I do is that there's this period of recovery from culture almost there's a there's a period of deep healing that happens Mm -hmm. that gives rise in community sometimes often but then that can give rise to these deeper questions being made safe to hold you know it's almost as if we need to find some way of holding the magnitude of these questions in their terrifying rebelliousness sometimes in how um, counterculture they can be and also, um, you know, that we're really in asking them um, defying the systems that we've been raised in and then the family systems and all of that other set of belonging, I guess, that we come to associate with. And then there's this period after they, this recovery or healing of, of that questioning. And I so often say it's like we can hold a question together without or individually without um, knowing 
the answer or, or needing to know the way through the question. And I wonder whether that's something that you cultivated during that period or whether it came before is that, that idea of those living questions and being in conversation with the more than human world and being okay in the not knowing of the answer um, or the knowing of, I guess, what you don't want without knowing what is for you, the knowing what is not you with, without knowing what is you. Like how do we, how do we find safety in that? in those questions <laughs> like a Dr Zeus riddle really. <laughs> yeah um <clears throat> well I mean yeah at the at the time I uh I when I really entered into that kind of immersive period in wild nature I was I still thought I had some kind of control over the process you know like I I had certain outcomes in mind um and, you know, I was, <laughs> I was still in recovery from my addiction to Western culture. Yeah. I didn't know it at the time, but, you know, one of the, one of the um, aspects of myself that was so painful to give up um, or surrender, which was really wrenched from me because I was holding on so tightly to it, was my addiction to control and to productivity and focus and goal orientation and outcome driven. And, you know, some might call it the kind of, um, you know, the masculine function of the doing. Um, and at the time, I, you know, I entered into this retreat space for a year, which was all about wilderness survival skills and rewilding and deep nature connection. Um, and I was, you know, passionate and still am passionate about all those skills, but I clung on to them uh, as, a, as a kind of thing to master, which really was the, you know, it was a perfect setup in a way because what, what happened out there was a kind of uh, crushing, crushing and a, and a really painful um, mirror of how strongly I uh, clung to the, the kind of masculine way of being in the world and what was being asked of me was to really surrender into not knowing and into a different way of being which was much more receptive um, much more intuitive, much more coming from the body and from the soul. And that's when, you know, my dream started to give me a lot of, a lot of guidance once, I, once I'd kind of been, um, you know, really been kind of in that crucible for a while and was forced to kind of give up. And really that, they're, they're the kind of words I was using is like, okay, I just give up. And that's when things really start to happen. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that's, yeah. when, that's when the psyche's like, okay, now we can actually do something here uh, now, that you, now that you don't have the illusion of control. But it, it is, you know, it's, it, it is kind of uh, there is a book, I think, that says uh, uh, the author, I'm Dolores Chappelle and I'm in recovery from Western civilization. And it's like that. There's like a, a period of coming to terms with the addictive quality of um, thinking we're in control and, and um Instead, our life being a series of questions, as you were pointing to, you know, questions that we live into, um, as Rilke puts it. You know, I, our, our job here is to live our way into the questions, the really core questions, and these are the conversations I love having with people. When I, people sit with me, I, one of the questions I, I ask them not to kind of figure out but to let their deep imagination play with it is, what is my deepest yearning? Really, what? What is my deepest yearning? What is my core inquiry? What, 
what wakes me up in the middle of the night and won't let me go back to sleep? Like what really occupies my deepest heart? And these are the questions that can, you know, they're, they're quiet. They niggle, but they're quiet. They appear in dreams and intuitions and hunches. And when we have space in our life, they kind of bubble up through the heart. They bubble up through grief. They bubble up through trauma. Um, but when, when we can actually consciously attend to them and, and not just, you know, really work with them, that's when things really start to shift, when we attend to these deepest yearnings, uh, which is, you know, often, oftentimes comes back to this, like how can I be more of myself in the world? How can I fully give myself? How can I live in a way that I feel deeply connected? Because in a way that's the historic trauma that we're all born into. We're all born into the historic trauma of disconnection. And one of the, the kind of cultural regeneration tasks that we're, we're engaging in is how do we reweave that web of connection? How do we reweave the, the connections to self and earth and, and community? You know, how, how can we, what connects us? What really connects us and what's, what disconnects us? Mm. And there's some of the questions that I really ask people to reflect on and, and for myself too, you know, I can find myself in periods of, of disconnection and like, hang on, where did I start making choices that don't that didn't support connection? Because I'm feeling a connection deficit. And I said this a few weeks ago. Suddenly this feeling of connection deficit in my life and what choices am I not making here to, to reconnect me? Mm. I love that so much. I think one of the one of the I guess mythos or one of the functions that I that I've identified and I'm just still such a, I feel a, a very, like a fetus in this development, but like the, the, that tracking of connection almost for me is it's an embodied, um, uh, like, like I can track it and see it and hear it and taste it and experience it almost like a rhythm in groups and in individuals and in my own experience, which is wonderful and also incredibly painful at times to be able to, um, see the great yearning and at the same time see like I know you said uh, around the skills that can become a way that we prevent ourselves from seeing those deeper questions and at the same time I, I also see and this is why I love your work so much is that there is a need for very practical or facilitated process to guide us through that process of reconnection and you know some of us use the body and some of us use community and so like there are a lot of tools and practices and, and facilitated experiences that can do that and everyone has their own individual route I guess to take but what what I'm particularly interested in is how we can build the capacity and the skills and the embodied safety and the trust to find us way back to each other. Like that's what I'm really, really curious about because I notice that even though I have such a high value on connection, there are still those moments when I notice because of the shame stories or whatever it is, whatever uh, whatever conditioned things going on or traumas going on in my body, how easy it is to convince ourselves 
to pull away and turn away and move away. So what are some of the ways that I guess you guide folks to find that reconnection with others? Mm. Yeah, I hear in your question a kind of um, an inquiry about how do we really create soul-centric community in a way that, you know, that's consistent and that, that kind of anchors us in a, in a, in a kind of sense of village or sense of like consistently being, being seen, catching each other's stories, holding and being held. And, you know, when we have the structures in which we live and work and, and, um, and kind of operate within all, all point us towards retreat and, um, towards not showing our vulnerability, not showing our, um, but our, our full, our fullness as well, our passions. It's so easy just to, to kind of, you know, skulk, skulk back to the, the four walls um, of one's home and uh, because all the bricks and mortar tell us that we're separate. Uh, we don't live in a, in a kind of open village structure anymore. But many of us, like yourself by the sounds of it, are, are refinding and reclaiming ways to bring community back together. And for me, the most powerful ways that I've experienced are are when uh, those village technologies, if you like, are coupled with um, connection to nature. So when we're we're reconnecting with community within a context of reconnecting with with, uh, land, uh, whether that's food growing or um, or seasonal celebrations or um, nature appreciation or sharing stories about time in nature, that for me, or sharing skills, um, that for me is where where the the magic really happens. Um, I ran a program or co-facilitated a program before before COVID, the two years before COVID called Rewild Fridays and, you know, I, I live in Melbourne now so I, I, um, I have the core, core question of like how do I, how do I re- retain my kind of connectivity uh, while living in the city? So I started this program called Rewild Fridays which um, was a, certainly an experiment. I had no idea how it would go uh, and it was an experiment in how deeply could we connect to nature and community um, in, in the city with a kind of limited time? So most Fridays we would gather in city parks around the north, uh, in a north Melbourne, like Darwin Parklands and Ceres, around the Yarra River, and, um, and we practice the skills of rewilding, you know, earth skills, ancestral life ways, uh, practice nature observation and awareness, building our sensory capacity, but we'd also story share uh, about our lives um, and really just hang out with each other in, in nature. And what I found, and I, I was facilitating, but I certainly both experienced myself and also really tracked in others really f- quite quickly, like remarkably quickly for a group of 12 people who didn't know each other and who got together, you know, most Fridays, but not every Friday, really deep strings and ropes of connection formed between them at the same time as they were, uh, those strings were being woven with wild nature. And one of my mentors, John Young, who 
uh, is an incredible tracker and bird language expert and anthropologist. You know, he says that we can, we can only go as far in our nature connection journey as we have with our connection with community. Um, you know, one supports the other, just like a kind of, you know, the, the companion call of the birds. You can't, you can't really have a deep connection with community without it involving a sense of belonging to the wider landscape. So, yeah, practices, you know, village technologies like um, getting together and having potluck dinners to mark the seasonal changes, getting together to uh, help each other with our gardens or to forage or prepare food or... Um, but really with that, with that knowledge that, that catching each other's stories on a regular basis and having a, you know, having a group of people or a handful of people that you kind of intentionally commit to each other in a way to, to catch each other's stories. You know, I was shocked recently um, in a breakout room uh, on Zoom when my, the people in my breakout room reported that they often go a day without anyone catching their story. And I was really shocked. I was like, really? You don't, you don't share your day with anyone? You know, I, I, hope to sh- I, I hope to share the story of my day with at least two people. You know, the, the roses and the thorns and it's just, it feels like it's lifeblood for me to share my story. Um, and I really feel a deficit when I don't, you know, when I, when I sh- you know, that, that time of day of gathering for dinner and, and celebrating and harvesting stories and reflecting that kind of dusk energy. It, it really feels like something missing if, if there's not a, a sharing at that time of day. So kind of, you know, some of this is, is, is just understanding of what the basic village technologies are, you know. And I imagine I've not had children, but I imagine that child rearing is something that, that can either be really disconnective or really deeply connective to a village, um, so this is, this is one of our tasks, absolutely, is, is reweaving village technologies into our suburbs, into our towns, our communities. Um, I think people that live close by to you, Meg, um, Patrick and Meg, who live at Dalesford, known, known as Artists' as Family, they've got some great YouTube clips, but they're, I feel like they're at the cutting edge of, um, of, the, of what we're talking about, reweaving village into regenerative culture because they're, they've, they're only supported, they only support the monetary system Like 30% of their home economy is reliant on the monetary system. Everything else is through what they call community sufficiency, um, which is, you know, life, their life support systems are reliant on their community. Yeah. Wood for their fire, for bartering and food swapping and seed saving and, and all, the, all the things that are required for... Um, a kind of neo-peasant lifestyle that they live and that for me is really modeling what we're talking about. I love that and I, something I love deeply about their work and then everything you're saying as well is um, the experimental nature of it and how I guess that I love what you said about you know that that it's mirrored between that the level of connection we have with our communities mirrored in the level of connection we have with nature because it is vulnerable having conversations with trees (laughs) and being in the wild in that way it's incredibly vulnerable um, to start that journey I think and 
but I can see how those threads are so beautifully woven and, and something Megan Patrick do and something I guess I've always done in letting the work evolve in its way and letting my, my life evolve and getting more comfortable is, is, is taking on these wild experiments that become the building blocks of that life, you know, of that regenerative life, of that, of a different way, of a hidden way, of a different, mm. of a different expression. And um, I think mm. that as I was even asking the question and hearing you reflect, I could even taste and sense those attachments still to like wanting the outcome of connection, wanting the fantasy of the village, wanting that romanticised idea of all my mum friends, you know, hanging out in, at, at my house mm. and, and also the deep grief of understanding that our systems don't allow that at the moment mm. and, um, and how I think it takes these commitments and these wild experiments to figure out um, different expressions and different ways and that that in itself is vulnerable but that over time they add up and um, people are curious and people want to peer or move toward move toward that in some way um, I don't know I don't really have a question I just was mm. reflecting on the that it's not linear and it's not transactional and it's not yeah I think focused. yeah Right. And it, yeah, it's a great framing to think of them as experiments because um, we're recreating culture, really, with, with all these, these ways. Of course, we're drawing on the old ways, uh, but, but, they're, but they're contemporary versions of them. You know, Meg and Patrick call themselves neo-peasants. Well, they're certainly living a very different life to, um, you know, a, a peasant lifestyle, but they've got a contemporary form of that which suits the particular conditions that they find themselves in. Um, so really important to, to like have a sense of lightness and experimentation, curiosity, playfulness with all these experiments, not thinking that we're going to get it right because, you know, some of the, some of the struggle comes from like, you know, when, when we're not getting our deepest connection needs, needs met um, and this kind of almost like a tantrum about it. Like, well, we're doing our best within the conditions that we're born into in this culture and they're all experiments. So let's give ourselves, let's give each other the kind of leeway, the kind of spaciousness and permission to experiment. You know, what happens if I initiate this or, or um, you know, start a seed-saving group that meets this often or whatever it is, um, but but keeping a sense of lightness about it and, and knowing that we, we, we just need to keep experimenting and seeing where the energy's, um, where the energy's going. But also with that comes a sense of compassion for me of just recognising, you know, there's, we are dealing with the legacy of historic trauma. Um, we are, you know, uh, these actions that we're taking are not really, a lot of them are not going to bear fruit in our lifetime. And just to, to, bring that into perspective, these, the kind of, um, the great turning that we're in, as Joanna Macy calls it, the shift to a life-affirming culture, life-affirming society and earth, um, it's not going to happen in our lifetimes. We're really taking steps and making actions and, and recreating culture, knowing that we're serving seven generations from now and knowing that we're not going to see 
we're actually not going to see most of the ripples of our actions. And so that requires quite a, a letting go. And I love this Joanna Macy concept of active hope that she talks about, Joanna Macy being a, an incredible elder and um, Buddhist activist and scholar and uh, developed the work that reconnects. And she talks about hope not being this kind of wistful, um, you know, kind of fantasy of what you want to see happen, but hope coming from the the actions that we take every day towards a life-affirming culture, having no idea whether they'll bear fruit or not, having no idea whether we will be able to make that societal shift before, you know, before ecological collapse. But the hope comes from just taking the actions, doing what we know we most value um, and letting go of the outcome. So I take, I take hope from active hope. <laughs> I love that and, and coming to the end of our conversation, but just also reflecting um, and I'm giggling a little bit at, the, at all the paradox and how liberatory it is for me to acknowledge the multiple truths, you know, of like lightness and experimentation and also a deep commitment to be with grief and how allowing the wave of grief, you know, as Joanna Macy puts it, to move us and mm. to, to allow that completion process of the grief or continual metabolising or composting of it to inspire those actions and that active hope. And, and it is paradoxical and it is, um, yeah. it is all the yeah, things, right? <laughs> that's right. Yeah, and, and you just reminded me about, you know, one of the, the main village kind of technologies that we've lost, which people are starting to bring back is, like the rites of passage programs, is grief rituals or just, just space for grief in general. Uh, it was quite really insightful for me when I heard about uh, that Indigenous cultures all had regular grief ceremonies or rituals or places or ways to grieve. And that just feels like a really significant piece of the puzzle for me in terms of like what's really missing from our communities. And of course, we live in a time when we're when we're privy to the realities of ecological collapse. And that in itself is a really unique grief to this era. Uh, to this industrial growth society. When our hearts are open, we're going to feel the grief of the absolute terror of climate change and ecological collapse and we need to create spaces for this to be metabolised and, and, you know, from turning private grief into collective grief because that is a great source of energy and empowerment um, and intelligence is really grieving together. Was it not last year, the year before at my house here in Fairfield on the river, we uh, opened up a, our fire circle, our ceremony ground here on the river banks uh, for a 24-hour, um, it was a grief ritual really. It was around the time of Sawain, the, um, the Celtic ceremony, um, and which is known as the, you know, the Day of the Dead or the Time of the Ancestors, which is in the Northern Hemisphere, it's Halloween. Um, and so we created a, our own contemporary version of a, of a sacred fire 
which is a fire that burns in a kind of tended in a ceremonial way um, as a space for grief. And grief, you know, looks lots of different ways. It's We had an altar there for everyone to come up with photos of their ancestors and um, and encourage storytelling and there was lots of singing and, and crying and laughing and uh, it was probably about 150 people cycled through the property over that 24-hour period and it was such a powerful um, such a powerful reminder for me of the need for these sacred fires. It's really quite simply a place to come, connect with the ancestors, connect with our grief, connect with each other. So simple, so universal in its in the elements that make up that ceremony. Mm. And the collective responsibility of each of those 150, you know, I think there's this idea that uh, if you're having something like that, it's it's all on you and you've got to do all this work and it's like it's something so profound about that shared accountability and responsibility and reverence and um, yeah. and everyone's energy being co-created, co-woven in that mm. simple way that happens actually I think when as facilitators we step back and allow that to happen naturally and without attachment or agenda and I just love I've heard you share that story before and every time you do I'm so moved by that simplicity mm. and how folks just deeply desired that space and how simple that that was yeah that's right it was not a monetary exchange there was no leader it was it was a it was a community community effort to um to provide that space and it just felt like such a simple but profound gift and uh someone recently contacted me saying hey have you seen have you seen this website sacredfire.org and um yeah it's just a it's a uh like a connective place for people anyone who who wants to run sacred fires or offer sacred fires says here you know this is where I'm offering it and this is where come and join us come and sit by the fire come and sit by the sacred fire and imagine if in every suburb there was a sacred fire burning at any time can you imagine that imagine knowing that within a kilometer or two of you you could you could go enter into someone's backyard and there'd be a sacred fire burning with a with a fire keeper, with a water keeper, uh, with with anyone else there who's just sitting in that sacred way, mm-hmm. with that kind of listening to each other and maybe just listening to the crackling of the fire. Uh, it it it'd change it'd change the landscape of our suburbs. Mm. It just brings me to tears thinking about that. Um, I got goosebumps yeah it's like radical inclusion too it's like there's no judgment the fire Mm. there's no judgment there's no set of rules there's no identified way of being that makes you worthy of the firelight you know it's just this very um inclusive space and how and how beautiful that is yeah thank you for that image Mm. um I just wanted to end by asking, just coming back to this idea of experimentation, what's a wild experiment or a living question that you're dancing with at the moment? And I would just love to hear, yeah, um, to hear a little more about that as we end. <laughs> ah, well, that's a good question, isn't it? 
Well, it's kind of an ongoing question, but it feels quite pointy for me at the moment. Um, and that's how to, I don't like the word balance in this context, so I'm not going to use it, but um, how to navigate the, uh, the, what can feel quite conflicting pulls in different directions. Uh, one is the pull to be creating and offering my gifts to the world, to be uh, continuing to say yes to helping and um, providing spaces for people's deep reconnection journeys, which is such a pleasure and such an honour and a privilege and I give gratitude for my work and my, my vision every day. Uh, but, of course, it can be all-consuming um, and this other gravitational pull to my own deep connection journey and, and my own kind of uh, soul work, which is wanting me to spend more and more time out in really wild places, um, you know, wanting me to, to, to be engaged in that deeper inquiry and to, to kind of gather more understanding uh, of who who I am and what I'm here for, and and really deepen my kind of conversational nature with with the world, which which doesn't really happen online. You know, it happens out there. It happens out there in the in the spaces where I don't have my phone on and I'm not conversing and with with words and and I'm deeply listening and feeling. And it it, it needs space. It it requires. Uh, it requires a slow, deep listening and, and attending and quite a lot of sighing for me when I, when I contemplate uh, this, these different gravitational pulls in my life, both which feel really important and um, the more immediate, you know, I don't have anyone kind of sending me uh, reminders on my phone saying, you're required out in wild nature all day. Um, you know, the reminders are more immediate and the, the kind of louder screech of technology is, is the one that I uh, often respond to. So the question, one of the questions I'm holding is, is uh, how to kind of navigate these uh, different worlds, the middle world and the underworld, uh, knowing that my relationship with wilder nature and with mystery is what really... Um, is what, where, my, where my gifts really come from. So I had to kind of nurture this and cultivate this relationship um, while I'm also out there in the world doing what, I, what I, I'm here to do. Mm. There's one question anyway. <laughs> Many. Oh, and I'm so glad you chose that question. It's like so deeply in my heart right now. Um, and, I, and I thank goodness that, I think this year or 2020 in particular was such an unravelling of exceptionalism and, and why I was doing my work in the world and the way that I was doing it to the point where I'm holding it so lightly that I'm willing to burn it all to the ground, to be honest, right now at this moment. Mm. And and that, that clunkiness of being pulled into and, and these soul connections I have and these conversations like with you that are so connective mm. um, outside my place, my, my, my community here in Castlemaine, um, but that, that I have not found an embodied way of 
feeling integrated between the two. And so it does feel tugging and it does feel clunky and it does feel uh, like they're competing sometimes. Mm. Um, and I don't know answers or, but I'm asking the same questions mm. and, I, and, and I'm asking it linked to also, um, you know, opting out of economic systems so that there is more spaciousness around having to do anything work-related, you know, in that sense of that that, that, that part of my life can bloom mm. without the economic pressure. Um, you know, I think there are questions that have been asked in lots of places, which I adore as well. I think like Megan Patrick and others asking these questions about how do we opt out of those systems. Um, but I just love that you're asking it and there's something for me around drawing a bigger circle of what community is mm. but also um, more unplugging from, yeah, that, that who am I responsive to and uh, continuing to be captivated and awe inspired by the natural world as equally as the conversations that I have online, you know, how can they be equally as captivating and, and knowing? Yeah. 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 Well, from where I sit, uh, I, you're asking fantastic questions and doing amazing work in the world. So I want to kind of encourage you to, to keep going there as well as yeah, finding, finding those ways to answer the, quieter, deeper call, and I can only imagine adding kids into the mix uh, is a whole other um, a whole other element that I don't need to navigate. <laughs> well, I think it's, it's more relationship, which is beautiful, you know, mm. more. I think, um, I think redefining the idea that focusing time and energy in your family system but that needs to compete with productivity, you know, is revolutionary in and of itself. But what is difficult is finding those moments to go on a vision quest and, you know, that really uninterrupted time. I imagine it's hard for everyone, but, um, yeah, with little ones it's it'll come, but it's patience at the moment. Yeah, it's remembering yeah. that life is long. Yes, yes. <laughs> um Thank you so much, Claire. As, I, as I'm finishing this conversation, there's a beautiful, I don't know what kind of spider it is climbing up a web out here. So I'm going to take that as a sign that we've woven something unknown and, and beautiful. And, um, yeah, thank you so much for your wisdom and time this morning. Well, thanks for your, your, the art of great conversation, soulful conversation. I've really enjoyed it. <laughs>